Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks. And today I'm wearing a lot of Jill's pins, plus a sticker that says, I voted. So I'm hoping it's sending a message throughout this entire podcast to every single person listening or watching that you get out and vote. So, Jill, we've talked a lot about Gen Z, and obviously this whole podcast about is about representing all generations. And so today, I'm so excited to be joined, uh, and we to be joined by Santiago Mayer. Uh, we're actually in the same room right now, because we're both in Washington, D.C., uh, with one goal, and that is to really turn out young voters in this election. Um, we've talked a lot about Gen Z on this podcast and how we're such a unique generation. We're the most diverse, the most educated, we're the fastest growing generation, and um, I'm just so excited for us to have this conversation about Gen Z and what voters of tomorrow in Santiago are doing to really turn out the youth vote. So, Joe, I'm going to let you briefly introduce Santiago and then we can get started, perhaps. I will, but I also want to let everybody know that the reason for the echoey sound is that you and Santiago are in the same room and you aren't using your professional microphone. You're just using the computer microphone, but please bear with us. It's It still sounds really clear and good. And so that's no problem. Um, and I, of course, am always interested in learning about all generations and have gotten to know Gen Z because of my relationship with Victor. Um, and I've learned a lot about the role in politics of his generation. And of course, I know the role of my generation. But um, Santiago, you have been really very involved. You've been very active on Twitter. You've been an active part of the Gen Z. And you founded something called Voters of Tomorrow, which Victor is now affiliated with as well. It's an organization for young people, run by young people. And I want, of course, during this uh, podcast to hear more exactly about what you're doing. We're going to talk to you about your unique generation and how they view the current political situation, how they view President Biden. Uh, as you know, Victor and I were both Biden delegates, so we have a very strong positive feeling about him and also about all the things that he's accomplished. And, but I want to know more about Voters of Tomorrow and seeing what you expect tomorrow. I mean, it's less than maybe just a little more than 24 hours before all the polls close. And so we're really down to the last minutes of making a difference in making sure that turnout is what it needs to be. And I'm looking forward to our conversation. I thank you so much for joining us, Santiago. Thank you so much for having me. I, Like you said, we're in the last few hours before polls open and in the last 24 hours before poll store closing. And we, Victor is Voters Tomorrow's strategy director, uh, and we are working with our entire national team. And we have thousands of volunteers and partners on the ground, and we're going to make sure that Gen Z turns out to vote tomorrow. So... Okay, so before we get to more about the organization you founded, you're both in D.C. Uh, obviously, that's related to the election tomorrow. Um, and so tell us a little bit about what you are actually doing in Washington specifically for voters of tomorrow. Yeah, so uh, Voters of Tomorrow is a national organization. We have chapters in 23 different states and 40 schools. And a big part of what we do is we work with partner organizations and voter, voter chapters on the ground and partner organizations and partner student clubs in different schools where we don't have a presence 
to make sure that Gen Z is mobilized, engaged, and educated in politics. And because of that, we are probably coordinating one of the largest same-day movements of young people for Election Day. So we needed a command center, and we're all spread out across the country. So it just made sense to come to Washington and do that. We have our entire strategy team here, our entire mobilization team, uh, and we are tracking every single part of the youth vote until the final polls close in Alaska. So it's going to be a very long day, but we're very excited to make sure that every single eligible voter turns out and to make sure that we are working together with campaigns, with other groups, with other organizations to ensure that young, young people are making their voices heard. And Jill, I'll just say, um, so we're currently in a, a bit of a separate room, but if we were in the main room, you would see this, we have a war room set up and it's, it looks truly like a war room. You have post-it notes all over, you have food, you have computers spread out, multiple screens. And so it's really a all hands on deck operation uh, here in DC and uh, just fingers crossed for tomorrow. I would How add, many of you are there? Uh, we have 20 people here, uh, plus honorary member Taylor Swift because her music has been playing nonstop. Does she know that? If she fall, if if she saw my tweet, my tweet, she probably would. Although she might also get a restraining order, so we don't want to. <laughs> I think it's time for you to contact her and um, <laughs> make sure that she knows that she is part of your group, and maybe get her to actually do something that would get a lot of attention. That would be fantastic. Okay, so Santiago, we met through Twitter originally, um, which is actually how Jill and I met to begin. So it's a very powerful platform for meeting people. We met in person for the first time when I was at UCLA. Obviously, now we're both with Voters of Tomorrow, so I know you quite well, but I want our audience to get to know you a little bit better. So tell us a little bit about your journey and how you got involved in politics. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm originally from Mexico City, and I moved to the United States in my sophomore year of high school. Uh, in Mexico, I was very involved in Mall United Nations and was quite passionate about international relationships and how politics affected the way that different countries interacted. And obviously, I moved here in 2017, which was in the midst of the Trump administration, in the midst of the Muslim ban, which had multiple impacts on the way that different countries viewed and interacted with the United States. And because I was so interested, it was something that I wanted to talk about in class. And I kept bringing up different things that were happening to my classmates. And one of the things I quickly realized is that many young people didn't either didn't have the knowledge or the tools to actually discuss politics. So I, I needed to somewhere to vent my thoughts and I started tweeting about it. And for one, one reason or another, I really could not tell you why. Uh, my tweets really blew up and I started building a platform. And as we got closer to the 2020 election, I decided to use that platform to solve the problem that led me to have it and to really make sure that young voters were not only educated and prepared to talk about politics, but were also engaged and represented in them. And thus Voters Tomorrow was born. And our, our big focus is, again, not only to educate young, young voters, but to make sure that they are an actual part of every part of politics whether that is by casting their ballot and contacting the representatives, by protesting and doing advocacy and going to lobby on the Hill, by having members of Congress actually listen to them and represent their concerns, and by having the president really listen to them. And one of the big things that we have been pushing, for example, is a White House Young Americans Advisory Council 
to really make sure that young people have a voice in the White House that can advise the president of one young Americans think. And that is just one of multiple ways that we're seeking to represent young people. The most important one is tomorrow we need to make sure that every young voter counts their ballot because we can demand representation if we're not showing off the polls. Now, in my generation, of course, we would have made telephone calls to landlines, which people would answer because they didn't know who was calling. We well, would have done it by, by snail mail uh, uh, because we didn't mail? have computers. What, what Victor? Yeah, what's a landline and what's mail? I know you know because you have one at home. I know that. But yes, um, those old fashioned things that are wired to a wall. Remember, I grew up before there were even the kind of phones that you can walk around your house with. That didn't exist. It was wired to the wall and you could get a long cord. I actually had a 30 foot cord. Because, you know, when I lived in New York, particularly, I could walk around my almost entire apartment with that 30 foot cord because it was pretty small. But, yeah. So reaching out to people was really hard and forming an organization was very difficult. I mean, you would go on campus and you'd put up a poster or something, but you couldn't just reach out through Twitter. And I'm I am for my age, I'm say I'm pretty proficient at Twitter and do pretty well on it. I would um, agree. I would agree. I love your tweets. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's so good of you to say. Um, but yeah, I mean, I really enjoy engaging on Twitter. I hope it survives what's going on right now. Um, I can't figure out Mastodon. I looked at it. I was going to register and I can't figure out what group I would even belong to that would have conversations about politics that I enjoy. But anyway, so um, before we get to the organization and how you found it, and I have a lot of questions about that. Did you speak English when you came here? Because you were already quite old. I mean, not I old, did, but, yeah. Uh, earlier in my life, I had lived in Seattle for a few years, and I learned English in, Se in Seattle. And in Mexico, my school was bilingual, and they uh -huh. really made sure that we knew English. So I, I came in speaking English. Obviously, it's gone significantly better uh, over the past few years. It's but perfect but right now. I mean, there, 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 you, you speak perfect English, so um, and your tweets you. are it's, in perfect English. It's, it's just a few. It's just a few words. Yesterday, Victor was bullying me for not being able to say mustache. There you go. <laughs> oh, that was good. That was good. Uh, Why did you need to say that? It was a. It was a weird conversation. Okay. Yeah. Right. Don't, don't grow one. Um, <laughs> you don't need it. So, um, is your whole family here now? Uh, my direct family lives all in the United States. Uh, my my parents live in, in Atlanta now. And I'm based in LA and I still have family and friends in Mexico. I go every summer. I, I hang out with my family. I see my, I hang out with my friends. I see my family and it, it is always a summer of fun. It is, it is quite enjoyable. So I'm assuming if you're traveling back and forth that you're documented because otherwise there'd be a risk every time you left. I am. Yeah. I have a green card. Good. Okay. Have one question. So Santiago, you touched upon um, what it was like being here during the Trump administration in 2017, particularly we saw a lot of the immigration bans happening. Talk about how that shaped your worldview about U.S. politics, because that was kind of your first formal introduction to U.S. politics. Um, but what was that like navigating that as someone from Mexico and having to deal with all that um, vitriol and, and negativity from the administration? Yeah, I mean, I think... Trump's candidacy in 2015 really was my first exposure to American politics because even not living in the United States and seeing it from Mexico, 
you could see the shift in the way that things happen. Obviously, Obama was very beloved across the world. And uh, I remember when Trump announced his candidacy, I mean, the first thing he said is that Mexicans were rapists and drug dealers. And that was, I mean, that was just shocking as a, Mexic as a Mexican citizen living in Mexico. So when I moved to the United States, I obviously already had a relatively solid idea of what I believed the Republican Party, especially and specifically Donald Trump was. And just trying to navigate politics during the Trump era really just solidified that because we kept seeing the vitriol and hatred directed not only just towards Mexicans, then it was Muslims and then it was black people and then it was Asian Americans during the pandemic. And you just kept seeing how it just got worse and worse and worse. And no one in the Republican Party really had the backbone to stand up and say, just stop. This is this yeah. is hurting people. And listen, I think I I hold very unique and very specific political views. And like I don't align 100 percent with the Repo with the Democratic Party, but I know I definitely do not align with the Republican Party. And I know that they would not want me there, even if I did. And Part of why we're just more existence it does is because we are nonpartisan, because we want to have that sort of people that simply want to believe that democracy is important and that having a that having a respectful government that treats citizens kindly and treats non-citizens just as well is, is important and critical. And listen, we're not a democratic organization, we're not we're not a Republican organization. We're a pro-democracy organization and we're a Gen Z organization. Gen Z has specific beliefs and specific values. And regardless of where those values fall in the political lines as they continue to change over the next few years, voters as well will move with them. So this would be a good time to go more into Voters of Tomorrow, which you started when you were a senior. So it was like two years after you had come to America and took up residence here. Um, and it's obvious now what led you to create this organization, but how did you go about starting it up? Was it just through social media that you set out the notice or how, how did you go about doing it? It was largely through Twitter. Uh, in, in 20, we, I created the Twitter account earlier in my high school career and I really just wanted to tweet like things about youth in politics. And that was the initial name versus tomorrow that that's where it came from. It was just gonna be a Twitter account. And as, like I said, as we got closer to the 2020 election, I said, okay, this has the potential to be something more. So I started just tweeting out uh, form, Google forms, asking people, young people who were interested to apply. And we built a really solid initial team. And most of them are no longer part of us tomorrow for a variety of reasons. They're all amazing people. But we, we built a really solid team that really shaped the organization. And we... We set up a goal and we said in 2020, we're going to make sure that young people turn out and show that Donald Trump, that Gen Z does not align with him. And through even the pandemic, I mean, we we did that. We we met that goal. 50% of our generation turned out in the middle of a global pandemic. And we had very creative ways to do that. I mean, my, one of my favorite initiatives uh, was Prom at the Polls. I, I was a senior when the pandemic started and we went into lockdown and that. I know many of my friends wanted to go to prom. I know many of them had uh, already bought outfits and stuff. 
And we encourage them to take that energy with them to go vote, to put on their prom outfit and go cast a ballot, to ask someone that they wanted to go vote with to out on a promposal and go vote. And we were very lucky. We were supported by Alyssa Milano in that initiative and ended up connecting with so many amazing people. I mean, the highlight of my life was to get Mark Hamill, Luke Skywalker, <laughs> to tweet out a promposal to Tara Strong, uh, who voices many amazing animated characters. And we got the entirety of Grey's Anatomy and Station 19's cast. And it really showed that when Gen Z does something and commits to something, we get things done. And we're, we're doing this again in 2022. That's amazing. And it's amazing how you get movie stars and singers and uh, real celebrities to be involved. It's, it's wonderful. Um, I don't think that would have been possible. How did you get funding? What did you use for funding? So initially, Voters of Tomorrow, uh, throughout the entirety of 2020, we operated with a grand budget of zero dollars and zero cents. Uh, we, we had no money and everything that we did was shaped by having no money because we had very limited, we had very tight constraints. We, we knew what we could do and what we couldn't do. And uh, as we came into 2022, we realized that in order to really flex sort of our generational power, we would need to have those resources. And thus we incorporated us in 501c4 in uh, March, 2021, May, 2021, and started fundraising. We have thousands of amazing grassroots, grassroots donors who each contribute five, 10, $15. And they have funded probably the big, single biggest youth organizing program in American history. I, I can't say it for sure just yet, but we're getting pretty close, and I, I'm very optimistic that that program will have amazing results. I mean, just talk about really quickly how, how much we've raised in just November alone. Yeah, we uh, we have been making sure that all of our donors are aware of where their money's going to, right? And I think that's very important because we want people to trust us and believe in us. So we have been providing updates of how many young voters we've contacted. We've uh, just reached four million a few days ago, wow. and we made sure to make all of all the donors aware of that. Right. Uh, so, because of those updates, and because so many people really believe in youth, which is something that wasn't even the case a few months ago, uh, just in the few months, the few days of November, we've already raised uh, nearly hundred thousand dollars. All of which will go to continue to fund our organizing program, continue to reach even more voters than we could initially afford, and to make sure that in every single competitive district, especially those where there's more young voters than the margin by which the incumbent won, young voters hear from someone, have the information from someone, and know how and when to vote. Outreach is always at any generation, my generation, your generation, having a phone call or a postcard or a tweet or some other communication from a human being can make the difference in turnout. But I have to say, this is today is the seventh and it's not over yet. So if you're listening, Santiago, what is the donation information that someone would need? You can go to votersoftomorrow.org and there's a huge big button that says donate. And we would gladly appreciate uh, anyone who can ship even a dollar. I mean, sending a text only costs us a few cents. Making a call only costs us a few cents. 
with a dollar, you can really fund a lot of these. And every every single text and phone call counts. So anything that you can afford, and we're in the final stretch. Uh, if if you could chip in, we would very would be very thankful. It sounds like the goals that you set for yourself, you are achieving, and um, that you. How many members do you have? Do you know how many members? Yeah, so we have about 300 people as actual parts of Ursa tomorrow. We have a national staff of about 75 people. And then uh, chapter members, like I said, spread out across 23 states and 40 schools. But we're growing every day. I mean, when the Dobbs decision dropped back in the summer, that was our single biggest recruitment day. We had over 70 people sign up to start a Ursa tomorrow chapter or to join an existing one. And we had hundreds of people sign up to volunteer. And thanks to that, I mean, right now, we have over 400, 4,500 people who have signed up to volunteer with us tomorrow. Wow. And we are having amazing uh, volunteer shifts. Yesterday, uh, th these are just good problems to have. Yesterday, we were doing a text bank and I, they, our organizing team called me because we had to upgrade our Zoom account because we had so many people trying to join the Zoom oh. that we needed to increase our Zoom license to let them all in. That's um, great. That is great. And, you know, Victor and I are both very optimistic. Um, we aren't falling for all these polls, many of which I believe are Republican-funded fake polls. Uh, but the one thing that I keep hearing, and I just, I personally, I can't believe it because it's just too astounding, is that Dobbs doesn't matter anymore. That people were really upset when Dobbs happened, but they've lost interest. Is that true? Is your generation not concerned about their rights being taken away? That, that's simply not true. I mean, uh, Voters of Tomorrow, a part of what we do, we, we're kind of a jack of all trades at this point because there's simply not that many organizations focusing on the youth vote. Part of what we do is researching Generation C and finding out our political beliefs and what we stand for. And as part of those polls, we have been asking people what's the biggest issue motivating them to vote. And poll after poll, we have seen that abortion remains one of the top issues driving young people. We have seen, like I said, when Dobbs dropped, it was our single biggest recruitment day. And we are still every day hearing about that. And listen, Dobbs is obviously hugely important issue and abortion rights are hugely important, but it's just one part of a coordinated attack by the far right against young people, because it's not just abortion rights they are coming out for. They're coming for education. They're coming for LGBTQ plus rights. They're coming for everything that Gen Z has helped progress or has counted as something that we can rely on. And in large part, they're attacking Gen Z because they're afraid of us, because they know that we don't subscribe to their outdated values and that as more of us become eligible to vote, they're going to lose political power. That's why they're working so hard to suppress the vote and to install secretaries of state that will simply overturn the election because they know their beliefs are simply not sustainable in the long term. But in the meantime, they're fighting a war against Generation C. And if there's... If there's any parents listening who have Gen Z children, I think they will all tell you if there is one thing Gen Z doesn't like is when people tell them what they can't do something. <laughs> That's that true is... of every generation, Santiago. <laughs> Nobody likes to be told what they can't do. That's the um, surest way to turn someone off. Absolutely. So, 
let's talk a little bit more about Gen Z because this is such a unique generation. We, we mentioned at the outset that it's the most diverse, the most educated, the third largest generation in America, and we're only growing in number. Talk about how you describe Generation Z to someone who may not understand Generation Z completely and some of the biggest issues that affect our generation. Sure. I think Generation Z is relatively progressive, but also really pragmatic. As a generation, we largely understand that change has to happen, but we can't, uh, ex- we can't just ask for all of nothing. Change many times is incremental, and I think as a generation, we understand that. Uh, I think Gen Z is really open to seeing the world from a different lens. And that's why we are, by and large, the most inclusive generation of trans people and gay people, because we understand that even if even if one isn't part of the LGBTQ plus community, what happens to them affects all of us. And many of us have friends who are parts of the community, and we don't want to see them suffer like we had in the past. We know that abortion rights, for example, are hugely important even to people that don't have a uterus because what happens to other people affects us as well. And I think that sort of mentality of we're all in this together is something that really defines Gen Z because we have gone through so much in our like relatively short lifespans. We all have sort of grown as a conscious generation of what happens as a group. I mean, we were born through 9-11. We lived through the, I think we're at two economic recessions at this point. We've seen terrorist attacks, wars. We've lived through, an, we are finally living without a war in our lives. Wait, we've, wait, what do you mean you're living without a war? What about Ukraine? No, no, oh, no, I that's mean, true. Yeah, no, I mean like a war that America's fighting. Like as it, when, when President Biden pulled out of Afghanistan. If, if Ukraine was, doesn't win this war, America will be fighting Russia. So, oh, no, no, I fully, I, fully, I fully agree. No, I, I mean, specifically, when President Biden pulled out of Afghanistan, that was the first yeah. time in Gen Z's lifespan that right. America was not a war. Right. And Look, I, I want to ask you about Dobbs, because you mentioned Dobbs yeah. again, and, um, and you mentioned how it affects everyone, and I see it that way. I always am surprised when it becomes a woman's issue. It isn't. I mean, it takes two to make a baby. (laughs) It's the person with the uterus and it's the person without one. And so if you make someone pregnant, you're going to be a father and it has to affect you. And I'm wondering if, if your generation gets that the loss of the power to determine when you will become a father is as important as when that pregnant person is going to become a mother. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think the person that finds a woman that can get pregnant by herself will definitely be ushered into all of the medical programs across the country. But yeah, I mean, Generation C by and large understands the fact that yes, it's obviously a women's issue in the sense that women are the ones who have to carry the burden of pregnancy. But at the same time, it not only affects women because Fathers are part of the process and they are not only making baby, but they also should be expected to be part of racing it and paying for it to be raised. And as you see all of these abortion restrictions come into place, it starts to become a real question, even at, at an economic level of how it's affecting men and how it's affecting people who don't get pregnant. And Gen Z, by and large, understands that aspect. Like, I don't think any Gen Z man 
would support forced uh, vasectomies. Because of the same reason, I actually don't think any Gen Z women would support forced vasectomies. Because Gen Z is a generation that broadly believes in liberty and freedom and a, the autonomy to choose what we do with ourselves. And when they start taking away our rights and our ability to decide what to do with our own bodies, that is a really yeah. strong attack against our identities, against our autonomy, and against our rights as human beings. So I didn't mean to cut you off because you were talking about, I think, some of the issues that your generation right. really cares about. So go back to that. I just needed to follow up. A little no, no, bit. no, no, no. That's absolutely fine. Yeah, no, I was, I was just saying that because we have grown up with terrorist attacks and recessions and we have lived through the threat of gun violence all of our lives and we've seen a yeah. pandemic, many of us in high school, we've never been able to graduate without debt and many of us will never be able to afford a house. All of those are factors that we don't suffer personally. It's not just me that has gone through that. It's all of us. And all of us can relate to that level. And because of that, we all view Gen Z as sort of this unified front because we all have these same issues. And of course, there's people who have different ideas. All of us probably have different ideas to some degree. None of us will agree 100%. But the vast majority of Generation C agrees with basic standards of decency. We agree with democracy. We agree with freedom and the liberty to be who we are and decide how we live our lives. And the 20% that doesn't agree, they can have a voice, but they shouldn't be the ones dictating how the other 80% of us live our lives. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious because on the one hand, Gen Z is there's just so much coming at us. There's, you know, abortion rights, there's climate change, there's student loan debt. All of these issues affect our lives. But at the same time, we're the most digitally connected generation. And so you see a lot of Gen Zers taking to TikTok, taking to Twitter, Instagram, just reshaping how um, these conversations are being had. And so talk about how you mentioned a little bit about your experience using social media, but talk about how maybe politics has changed because of Gen Z and, and candidates and how they shape the narrative and, and their campaign messaging. Yeah, listen, I think that social media is an incredibly powerful tool. And that's not just because it allows to connect with people across the world, but because broadly politics has not has become something that is not confined by any national borders, right? And we we saw that in 2016 with foreign actors participating in our elections. We've also seen that over the past few years with trolls and farm bots and everything that has happened. But we also see that when we can hear what people across the world are thinking of what's happening in the United States, when really when people in the United States can opine on Brexit or what's happening in Canada, it really has become a, a worldwide sort of demonstration of what each country stands for. And I think candidates have been emboldened to try and just win the popularity contest without really caring about the strength of what they are winning that popularity contest with. They only care about the likes, they only care about the attention, and don't really care about the people that they're seeking to represent. So big part of what we encourage people to do and candidates to do is to use social media not as a popularity contest, but as a tool to connect with actual constituents, specifically younger constituents who are more likely to be online. And to use social media as really a channel where you can speak to people who might not be coming to political rallies, who might not be watching cable news all day, who might not receive political 
materials because we saw in 2020 only 50 percent of young voters actually heard from a campaign the the rest of them simply didn't hear from either side and i think social media is a tool to solve that i think candidates are some candidates are using it incredibly some candidates not so much but i think it is available for anyone who wants to use it and to actually connect with Gen Z. So Jill mentioned how for her generation, part of, you know, on campaigns, there's always this saying you have to meet voters where they are. And part of reaching Jill, reaching Jill's generation was maybe through the phone and through, you know, face to face interaction. But this generation is so much social media, texting, digital ways. And so it's really transformed the entire it, process. It's very like, interesting because you're right in terms of my generation. Uh, and yet I see my goddaughter and who's old enough to be your mother, um, who has, she has children your age. Victor has met Lena, who's one of my grand godchildren. And um, they think having a conversation is texting with each other. And to me, having a conversation means I'm looking at you, I can see you, I'm talking to you. So it, it is different. and. People my generation who are running for office need to realize that it's not the TV ads that are going to convince you. You can have a conversation online. And so that's I think you're making a very important point for candidates to use, to reach you, to get the message out. But inherent in that also, and it's true with even live messaging, is that you have to take responsibility for investigating the truth of what's being told to you. Because I've seen so much messaging that's just made up malarkey to use President Biden's terminology, but it's, it's or I could use Attorney General Barr's um, BS, which he, <laughs> he didn't shorten it, um, because it is, it's just totally facts matter. But unless you take the time, when you read something and you go, that's too good to be true. You know what? It probably isn't true because it's too good to be true. How do we get your generation to make sure that they check the facts? Yeah, I think there's there's several layers to this. Obviously, on one level, it is very important for platforms to take responsibility of the content on their sites. And I do think you can't take them off the hook. Obviously, because consumers have a responsibility as well, but platforms should be moderating the news that's spread on their platform, making sure that fake news is flagged as such. I also think, and this is something that we have been working on, is you have to find reliable sources and make sure that they are the sources that you think they are. We as an organization are going to be We've, we saw what happened in 2020 with candidates claiming victory without actually winning. And we want to make sure that we're avoiding that. So as an organization, we created what we're calling the VOT War Room Twitter. It is uh, live controlled from our command center. And basically, we are going to be tweeting confirmed, verified information so that people that are following it can be sure that what is coming yeah. from that account is not opinion, is not uh, a rumor, it's actual verifiable facts. And I think many more organizations should be doing this. I also think many more young people should be finding sources like this and really listening to all of this. I, I also will point out, I did a panel with PBS a few days ago uh, with Victor as well. 
And part of what we're talking about is that it, students should learn how to tell real news supporting class. And there should be a media literacy component of public education because it yeah. is so important for, for not only just young people, but the population at large to know what is fact, what is not, to know what's commentary and what's opinion and what's news. And if we did that, I think we would be, first of all, in a lot less trouble as a country. Yeah. But second of yeah. all, I think we would be able to really progress. And it's not just online, um, and I'm going to have to go in a few minutes, but I got a newspaper, or, or what purported to be, what looked like a newspaper. It was called North Cook News, and I live in Cook County, so I thought it was a local newspaper, except as soon as I started reading it, I went, this is political propaganda. There's not a fact here that's true. It was all, it, it was a Republican source. It was all against Governor Pritzker. And I worry that people are going to pick that up and go, oh, I can't I can't vote for him. I was planning to. But, oh, my God, I didn't know he was going to be indicted. Well, no, he's not. They make that up. And so people have to read things critically. They need to think about what is being said. And, I mean, I never tweet anything. Well, I shouldn't say never because... Like everybody, I have fallen for that. It's too good to be true. And I have retweeted and quickly retracted it as I see the response to it. Um, so it, it happens to everybody. It really does. But it doesn't happen to me that often because if someone says they were indicted, I look at the indictment. I don't take someone else's opinion of it. And with today's you know, computers, it's really today's phones. All I have to do is look at my phone and I can get the answer. And that's what I would urge your generation to do, too, is don't believe what you're reading on social media. You don't know who the people are. And now I know you've seen a lot of Elon Musk's have suddenly appeared on Twitter. And they aren't. You know, if you read the at, it's wow. not Elon Musk. It's people making up things. Um, and so you can't trust what that is. And you, you have to be really careful. But. I want to thank you so much for the work that you have done and that you will keep on doing. I know you're not going to give this up after this election. And we, you know, the day after, even though we probably won't know the outcome for many of the races for several days, I'm not expecting by the time I fly back from Minnesota and I don't land till like 10 o'clock, I don't expect to know very much until at least 24 hours later, maybe more. Um, but I know that you know that the day after starts the 2024 presidential. Yeah, absolutely. And so you have to keep on going. What are your plans for 2024? Listen, 2024, uh, I, we, I have not even begun to think <laughs> about 2024. But we know that right as we're recording this, we're tracking news that Donald Trump might announce his candidacy for president today. <laughs> So it's not even a question of when 2024 begins because we already know that it has. <coughs> yeah. And at the end of the day, it's also a question of turnout. And it's all going to come down to how many young pro-democracy voters turn out. And if 2020 was any indication and 2018 was any indication and this year will be an indication, those numbers are just going to come up. Keep, and it's not just keep, young voters. It's my generation has to get out there and Every single generation in between, the baby boomers all the way down, have to get out it's and vote. It's, it's really, 
There you go. It is. Yeah. And that's why this started out as intergenerational politics and got shortened to iGen politics. But we are still an intergenerational podcast. And I've learned a lot from listening to you. I appreciate your work. And I hope you will keep it up and give yourself a day or two. But get busy on 2024 because it's it's here. And I'm going to just I, I'm because you mentioned it. I'm going to say I don't think we need a special Council. I think the Department of Justice can continue to investigate Donald Trump and can indict him if they find enough evidence, which on the public record seems to already exist. Now, maybe there's some exculpatory evidence that we don't know about, but I don't see it. And I think if there was some, someone would have put it out. Donald Trump himself would have put it out. So that means there probably isn't. And there, there is enough evidence to support an indictment and a conviction and to sustain that on appeal. And I think it should go forward. I do not believe that an ex-president or a candidate for president is exempt from the laws of America. And if you violated them, you violated them. So that's, that's what I think needs to happen. But the best way to make sure that policies you support get enacted is to go out and vote. And that is every generation. And Santiago, thank you so much for coming on. This is su this was such a fantastic conversation. I know we'll be tracking the youth out for the next 24 hours. So um, we have a lot to get back to you, but thank you to our audience for listening, watching. Um, hopefully we'll be back next week if we can all survive. <laughs> um, but, but you can find us wherever you follow your podcast. Thank you so much. And thank you, Santiago, for doing this. Thank you. And thank you, Gil, for letting me steal your co-host <laughs> for the next probably 24 hours at a minimum. That's okay. You're doing the most important work ever. So keep it up. I'm proud of you both and uh, very happy to be part of this conversation. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you.